Hello, dear listener, and welcome to this week's episode of Garmology, the podcast about clothes and stuff. If you'd like to um, support the podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, send me an email to say hi, tell your friends about the good listen. In the meantime, let's head off to Wales and learn more about repairing outdoor gear. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, today's episode is definitely more in the stuff, but with clothes, and I'm totally bollocksing up this intro, so I'll start writing again, because <laughs> uh, I <laughs> completely thought wrong there. Okay, let's try it. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, today, the clothes take us outdoors, and my guest is Rosanna from England. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I am actually in Wales and I'm Scottish. <laughs> there you go. So, go UK. <laughs> and I am a little bit Norwegian as well. <laughs> um, so yeah, my name's Rosanna. I run Snowdoni Gear Repair based in North Wales. Um, we specialise in outdoor equipment and clothing, so I still do a lot of backpacks, tents, that sort of thing. Um, I started fairly recently on my own back in June last year but before that I worked for a a company doing in-house repairs there and before that I was an engineer but discovered pretty quickly I didn't like sitting at a desk so um, one way or another I've ended up ended up in repairs Um, my other half's from here he's from Chamberis just at the foot of Snowdon and we were visiting there one day and I'd got back into sewing I've always sewn but um, I kind of got back into it over lockdown and then sat up in the night and went oh my gosh <laughs> outdoor gear repair it's it's technical stuff but it's um it's creative and it's design as well and it's working with your hands and yeah it's just kind of gone from there and we're bonkers busy now <laughs> with it being winter so yeah grown faster than I thought it would I thought gear repair was a very very clever name and it's oh. been sort of going round and round in my <laughs> oh, mind <good>. all day <laughs> <laughs> we kept thinking about I was going to call it um, fix it for a bit like the Norwegian for to fix something and then I thought I was just being too clever and I thought what's the most googleable thing so that's why it's Snowdonia gear repair so I thought you're in Snowdonia and you need some gear repaired there you go you're just going to google it so <laughs> yeah <laughs> So the type of gear you repair, you mentioned outdoors, Mm -hmm. it's uh, tents, backpacks and all manners of outdoor wear? Uh, Yeah, mainly jackets, waterproof jackets and insulated jackets. Um, Obviously we're in quite a rainy part of the world, um, so we get a, a mix of normal insulated and, or like, you know, synthetic insulated and, and down. And then... After that, it's just a complete mix. I've no idea what's coming through um, through the door. Uh, a few backpacks, although they're often quite expensive to repair and last a long time. Whereas like the newer jackets, I think tend to have, I don't know, quite often I get them and they're about three, five, three to five years old. Um, and then I get a lot of, um, it really depends on the weather. If it's snowy, I get salabets. <laughs> and as soon as anybody gets um, the crampons out, with crampons you're tearing your trousers people tear the the like the kick plate quite often it's really funny because um you'll get like they'll have put a kick plate on it <laughs> and then you'll get tears all around the outside of the kick plate 
so it, it'll come in the post and just say can you double the size for my big feet but. when i found you initially on instagram i was very encouraged to see that there was actually a business in this and that people were having their stuff repaired this because I've, we seem to live in times when people basically just throw stuff out all the time i've i've had i've had people be skeptical and it's really interesting sometimes i'll speak to someone on a saturday like a family friend and they'll be like oh sewing in the uk no 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 that was that's been sent offshore years ago there's no money in that anymore and then on monday i'll come in and i'll have this email can you repair these five items and i'll send them a quote back and you know it's like 40 quid an item or something and they send the email back excellent i'm so excited thank you so much as soon as possible please <laughs> so you get yeah people questioning whether it's um, even my dad who has had a business and is in manufacturing but with food himself i think because there's people perceive sewing to be so cheap but with outdoor gear it, two things one is actually really expensive in the first place and it is quite expensive for what you get um when you're buying a lightweight jacket or a or gore-tex trousers or something um you can spend over 400 pounds and if you're going to wear it every day if you're like an outdoor instructor or even if you're going to wear it really heavily so if you're going to go on like an extended trip for two weeks you're not going to wash it um it's not it's probably not going to last you know you're not for 400 pounds <laughs> You're not, I think people, people kind of, I don't know, I'd say for a jacket, 50 to 100 pounds a year, at least. So suddenly 40 pounds for a repair, which means you don't need to buy another one for for another two or three years. It's, it's well worth it. And there's a lot more work than I thought there would be in alterations. And that's alterations because it doesn't fit. Or can you add something or take away something that I just don't agree with what the designer's done? And I think at the beginning, I didn't really, I didn't think I had anything on Arcteryx. <laughs> you know, there's this team of Swiss designers that have been through the mill, gone to, you know, technical university or whatever. They're professional ice climbers who get, you know, testing their kit. I thought there's no way I'm going to come up with a clever solution to something. But the industry's gone so global now that you're buying stuff from from a company in Canada. So it's not specific to North Wales. So they might not have thought about your specific use and it might not fit you. <laughs> because again, we've yeah. gone so global with stuff. Um, the chance of it fitting you is even less than it used to be. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned um, that there probably weren't many people sewing in the UK any longer. And I guess the once pretty strong UK outdoor wear industry mm -hmm. has also gone the way of low-cost countries now. Is there anything left being made in the UK? There's so much more than you think. When I started, I thought there was no British manufacturing, and there's masses. There's still masses, like there's a lot of factories that, you know, Paramo still makes some, I think. Buffalo definitely still make in Sheffield. They just haven't changed. There's, there's smaller companies like, um, I mean, it's not that small, but Aguil Alpine in the lakes. But there's also new companies, um, Atom Packs up in up in the Lake District. He's, I don't know how, I, I don't know in statistics wise how fast he's grown, but um, he's gone from strength to strength. He has he has quite a team of seamstresses now. So there's there's actually new factories opening, and not just cottage industry, 
you know, out, out, out in the shed in the back, but proper factories, you know, earning people, people earning a decent wage and a, a, a serious, <laughs> serious production facility. I think it's got so expensive. The gear has got so expensive that it is feasible again. I guess with shipping and things going up, but also there's a gap, a growing gap between design and manufacturing knowledge. I don't know if I'm skipping ahead a bit here. We're going to talk about this later, but those the people who design don't necessarily know how to sew. And mm. I think sometimes what happens is I don't know because I I haven't been in the industry making stuff but just this is from taking things apart <laughs> and following you know getting the getting the email subscriptions from the from sewing machine manufacturers and stuff and and getting emails now of do you want a tech pack we'll make you 20 tech packs just send us a drawing and that means you're not specifying how the things put together uh, and you can really tell when you get an old carrymore on the table the old hot ice ones that uh, we get loads of them here because they did a collaboration with the Joe Brown's shops um, and because I think they used to sponsor one of the outdoor centres as well so there's a lot of the old stuff kicking around and you sit that right next to a brand new bag that's been made in China the the Chinese bag has just been put together in the quickest way possible not in the most durable way possible and there's such a long chain between the designer who actually understands climbing or actually understands the outdoors the person who decides how the thing's going to get put together and the person who then manufactures it it's such a long chain that I think back in the day when you had someone in the caramel factory it wasn't such a long stretch <laughs> between concept and production I don't have you got sense. any good examples of uh, of these matters well, that's, I've, I've actually got one here, but um, yeah, the, the caramel, it's just so simple. It's been put together probably not in, in the fastest way possible, but in the most efficient way possible with the fabric. So um, I unpicked an old caramel hot ice and laid it out on the table and um, got all the pieces arranged and they measured exactly the width of a roll of fabric. Uh. Um, yeah, um, it's just put together so sensibly and you can tell they've actually thought about where it's going to wear out and how you're going to get to it. <laughs> so, so you mentioned um, old Carrymore as, uh, as a quality, um, I suppose, vintage make. Uh, I see a lot of uh, old down jackets are having a moment now becoming suddenly very popular again and it's it's quite surprising to see how many there are still around. Yeah, an awful lot. It's, um, I think, two things. It's one, it's a testament to how long this that you know that type of fabric lasts, and two, just how many were made in the first place. <laughs> um, I went into that, of course. Yeah, I went into Liverpool the other day, and um, the upper floor of a vintage shop was just fully fully stocked with Patagonia and North Face. And then, I don't know if you've seen, Rab have started doing their old vintage logo. They've reprinted their old logo. Um, I think what happened is they, or well, someone told me this, so it might not be true, but um, they found they found a reel of the old labels and sewed them onto some hats or something and people went mad for it. So they've, yeah, brought them back again. I guess trends just come around, but yeah. Outdoor yeah, is of... in and vintage is in. So outdoor vintage is 
yeah by default in i think and it also also kind of proves my point that there are warehouses around where old stuff is just stacked high waiting mm-hmm. for its moment to arrive again there is and they so, can just ship it out yeah there is so so much stuff i struggle now to go into shops because i was having this conversation with someone the other day and they said oh it must motivate you so much you go into work every day and you save an item from landfill and i'll save you know on a on a good day five to six items if it's you know from being quick or if they're easy jobs and how many items have been produced in, in those 12 hours it's quite terrifying just how much stuff there is already in the world let alone that's being made but i do think i mean i i, I say it all the time we'll be digging stuff out the ground soon but i think with with outdoor gear especially the old stuff is worth every penny i read something the other day that said um our generation what will be remembered for you know we look back at victorian dresses or we look back at edwardian and and we have bits and pieces we've got an old corset and that goes in a museum and what will we have what will people be looking at in a museum that belongs to us (laughs) it was quite a depressing thought (laughs) i don't know um yeah not quite sure skinny jeans with elastic fabric or something like that have you seen those pair that pair of jeans that they buried Yes, I've shared it a few times yeah, and people yeah, keep asking, yeah. what is this alien object? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's quite interesting. I don't think many people have sort of really understood how awful those things are. Speaking of old items, mm-hmm. though, I mean, how old are the oldest pieces you get to repair? Uh, I've literally just this morning put a zip in a mountain hardware jacket that was 20 years old. I have repaired things older than me. I am now 28. <laughs> uh, I, one of my favourite ones was a, an old Jaguar backpack a big green thing I think it was green because they actually did stuff for the military I think that's how Caramel got big and um, or I'm not sure if how it contributed to their growth but um, one of one of the ways and uh, he, he proudly slapped it on the counter and went um, this, <laughs> this broke down Heathrow's baggage claim for two hours <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, the strap, of, you know, the classic, the strap had got caught. And uh, yeah, and then we carried on talking and he said it was older than his kid and his oldest daughter and turned out she's older than me. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, stuff can last if you just take a little care of it, I guess. Oh, no, this one had not been taken care of at all. It was just bombproof. It was literally designed for the military and he'd taken it everywhere with him. Um, Bits of it were shredded and other bits were completely intact. It was really impressive. <laughs> you know, the wear, you can tell it's not... It's just been used so, so many times. <laughs> you know when, um, yeah, when you get like a, a really nice denim and it's just been worn and you can tell how many times that person's knelt on that one little bit of fabric. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, yeah. It, uh, I think a lot of people are quite hard on themselves um with outdoor gear and i think it has got more complicated to look after it all textiles in general because we've got so many types of textiles now and there was the whole revolution of ease of use like we moved away from silk we moved away from wool we moved to synthetic so suddenly everything became really easy to use so now we just assume that you can bung it in the washing machine but i think we're also told a lot of the time things are returned to a company for warranty to a brand and people say 
oh, I, you know, I only did this with it. I only put it in the washing machine at 30 or I, I only used it a handful of times. And the brand will come back to you and say, oh, yeah, but you but you didn't, though, did you? You washed it, you washed it too hard or whatever. Kind of pushing the blame back on you because a lot of the time I'll get people, um, as a really common repair, uh, the hem, if you look at any outdoor gear business, if you look through their Instagram far enough, they'll have a photo of an Arcteryx hem or cuffs where the glues come apart. Uh-huh. Um, really, really common repair. I don't, I don't know why they've not fixed it. They're so good as a company at you know designing for fit, and and they really pride themselves on their technical ability and just this one thing they haven't fixed. But customers will come to me and say, oh, "I can't believe I've messed it with my really expensive jacket. It's all my fault." And it can't be just your fault because <laughs> it's happened to everybody. So either you're all making the same mistake, which the company should kind of identify and say, right, we need to make it so that we can wash it at 30, because this is ridiculous, assuming that this many people are going to have a machine that goes down to 15 degrees, or it's a manufacturing fault and or a design fault and they just won't admit it to you. Is part of the problem that older gear was made by humans, whilst newer gear is sort of more machine made and glued together less sewn it's part of it i it's not it is difficult sometimes what the machine can do but i think even if it was a person even if the glue machine was being operated by hand it's the speed it's not the mm, i don't know because i've never stood in a factory in china um but it's you can tell um do you know what bias binding is i'm assuming when yes, you bind, yes. bind an edge yeah um you can tell now a lot of things are bound in one go rather than individual pieces being bound or they'll do all the overlocking in in one step which actually isn't quickest on your own because it's quite awkward to do but if you've got a machine that guides you round and you've got a, a huge factory where you've got to trudge, you know, however many me a kilometre away because these factories are so huge. It makes sense to do it in those steps. But I read something in a uh, one of my very old dressmaking books that says if it looks well made, it's durable. If it's durable, it'll look well done. Sewing that looks good usually is well done. It's that simple. If you look at it and go, oh, yeah, that looks neat. And I, yeah, I, I think it's just speed. They're just trying to get the processes as fast as possible. And I think sometimes what happens is a factory will come up with a faster process. They'll sell it to a brand. The brand will convince the designer and the designer will then come and convince everybody. And then it'll it'll come up and say, we've spent years developing this magic glued seam just for you and we finally got the machine to do it and it, it's actually happened in reverse they've invented the machine and then sold it to you <laughs> right. it's not actually the best way it looks really neat for the first three months and then lo and behold the whole thing falls apart <laughs> yeah mm. so if we're thinking of down jackets or jackets mm-hmm. in general say over the last 50 years what have been the most significant developments and changes in it um i mean i haven't been a designer in the industry so i can only speak from the broken things i've seen (laughs) 
that's the interesting bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'd say most of all it's gone lightweight. Um, a lot of things are now glued, like you said, pockets. Zips have all gone a size or two down. So the one I was talking about this morning had a size eight zip, which is practically unheard of now on the main on the main zip and size five on the pockets. Uh, I'm now getting jackets where the main zip is a size three. So everything's gone smaller, um, even on the things that aren't necessarily marketed as lightweight. I think because it feels nice when you put something on and it, it doesn't weigh a lot, it's actually nice to wear something that's that's not heavy on you. That's why a lot of people get put off wool, I think. Um, but obviously it doesn't last as long. Uh, they flipped a lot of the zips over. I think we care more about look than we used to. Although there were kind of the snazzy colours in the 80s and 90s, I think uh, a lot of design has changed to make things look sleeker, like everything's more hidden. Um, and I think we've got some changes coming up. If uh, I don't know if you've seen them yet, a lot of down jackets and insulated jackets now, the baffles are being glued together, which I've heard. I haven't seen any in for repair yet, but I've heard from other repair shops that uh, they... Do not last and as soon as they go all of the down just falls to the bottom it's not just about assuming that the thing will break it's just, it's you know thinking about what's going to happen when it does break so old jackets often had like fail safe so the pockets if the zips went they either had like a velcro flap or even just the pocket was sewn in a way that there was a bit of fabric covering it so if if the zip broke you know the the whole thing didn't just fall apart um, but nowadays when one seam often they'll like um, on the inside panel instead of having a separate chest pocket and and waist pocket it'll actually be one piece of fabric that's just either glued or sewn across in one line so when that piece fails the whole inside of your jacket fails which is making it quicker but also making it lighter plus the materials have got more expensive yeah now, I, I was a, a teenager in the mid-80s and I can still remember the down jackets of the time or the sort of super desirable down jacket that all the rich kids had. It was the Fjellraven Expedition, ah. which was, it, I mean, it was huge. But also the down baffles didn't, they weren't sewn right through. So it had equal insulation all over. You didn't oh, okay. have the sort of um, seams meaning that your insulation varied all the time okay and i mean that was such a good jacket they still make it today although now they make it in a light version as yeah. well because <laughs> it's it is a beast mm -hmm. um but that seemed to me that that was quite a, kind of a pinnacle of down jackets and no one ever really made or evolved on from there it was just always i think most of them are so sort of fashion orientated I'm really interested, sort of... yeah, I'm really interested what's happening now with the way fashion is affecting outdoor gear because it's becoming so trendy. Um, somebody was telling me just a few days ago, they used to work at Plas and Brennan and one of the reps came by and, um, and said, what do you think of the gear? And he said, do you genuinely, do you genuinely feed this stuff back to designers? And he said, um, do you want me to be really honest? Absolutely not, because you're 2% of the market. Apparently they sold loads of stuff in Japan. Anything with a British logo, with the Union Jack on it. British logo, British flag. <laughs> um, not everything's a brand. <laughs> um, yeah, sells sells for loads in Japan. So there's a lot of people just buying it as fashion. I definitely think one trend, um, everything's got shorter. 
um, sleeves have got shorter and actual waist length as well just in general in the clothes that we wear if you think of the old waterproof jackets they were all cinched in at the waist and then they went well past the hip and modern stuff is yeah. a much uh, not boxier fit but like finishes at the hip it doesn't come in at the it just comes in at the with the cut not with like a drawstring so you've got less of a waist pull in I don't know if that's because we've all got rounder but it's a bit weird that things have got shorter because people have actually got taller so I'd somebody I spoke to who used to work in a shop he was convinced they were just doing it because it was cheaper because it was less fabric and because people buy stuff online now the weight difference matters in grams if you're standing in a shop looking at two items you're going to be more bothered about the color or the feel of the item than you are about two grams also you're not you know you're going to be holding them and you're going to say i can't feel two grams but when you're searching online you might want to sort by weight or you know because you can see the number you go oh i'll go for that one because it's the lightest one so we've been really really driven by weight recently i'd say in the last five years i wonder a bit about whether it's also related to say if i was buying outdoor gear in 1980 uh, it was because I had I was generally going outdoors and had some plans to, to go exploring. But I think a lot of people buying, say, down jackets and a, a lot of outdoor gear now are buying it because they're sort of cosplaying the great explorer look and they're not actually going farther than the parking lot. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of people who, who wear it around the shops. But I, I also think outdoor gear has become... Because it's become so much lighter um, and because and it's hard to say people have got richer because it doesn't feel like it at the moment, but we have. People's buying power has increased. This stuff didn't used to be accessible to the masses, and now it is. And actually, a down jacket's quite nice. It keeps you really warm. (laughs) You get out of the car on a cold day and walk into the office, down jacket's actually lovely, and it's really light. And Gore-Tex is great because you don't sweat, so when you walk into a shopping centre and they've got those huge heated fans, you don't immediately get drenched in sweat. So actually, outdoor gear is quite nice it's it's made to be comfortable but when a lot of those people start buying the stuff i think yeah then it might affect the design of it and now we might end up with a jacket that's more suited to just the short trek between the car and the office i don't know it's difficult because it's still marketed and sold as here's you know someone at the top of everest in this wonderful jacket you should buy it now even if you're only walking your dog in it um so i i don't know how i think probably a lot of it is just on what they sell i know there's a lot of products that um people have brought in for me and said can you copy this they don't make this anymore and i don't know why um a really common reason that they don't carry on so outdoor gear because it's um fitted to the human body and doesn't try and make the body look different like a lot of fashion does um it looks rubbish on a hanger which makes it really hard to sell in a shop so again online can kind of swing that because you see a photo of someone wearing it but something might just get discontinued because they couldn't sell it because it looked rubbish on a hanger not because it wasn't incredibly comfy when you put it on (laughs) so it's they can the feedback isn't as simple as here's a product we've made do you like it yes we do brilliant we'll make some more it's it's often so many other factors apart from that. Now, I've been very curious about um, the evolution of synthetics in outdoor mm-hmm. wear. 
because there was a time when it was all waxed cotton mm. or various versions of cotton and down and then we started getting all the the Gore-Tex and the synthetic synthetic outers and all the synthetic fillings uh, how have they stood up do you get an impression of that through repairs uh i've got a jacket which is a nordmanner ski jacket that was my mum's and she had it she bought it i think she might have sold a kayak to buy it <laughs> when she was in her 20s and I wore that when I was in Norway and people stopped me in the street and I wore it in Britain and people laughed at me <laughs> everybody in Norway oh my god that thing is amazing and it's it's an in, it's an incredible jacket it's had I think at least four zips on it now um but um it's so durable but it's really heavy <laughs> and it's pretty grubby <laughs> so yeah it's uh the old stuff is amazing and it's kind of sad that we've moved to synthetics but they they hold up very well for the first few years which i think also means they get a lot of use um it depends again you know it's it's all a balance if you want something that's lightweight it's not always going to last as long it still does last a surprising amount of time i think the things that really shock me are things that have been made in the last five years or even more recently than that there's fabrics now that i can't re-sew so usually well i've got a whole mix of methods for putting in new zips um but for waterproofs i'll usually unpick them now anyway lots of different methods um but some of the newer ones you can actually see the insulation through the fabric and i can't unpick them i, I this i'll just end up with too many holes so those fabrics they're so thin that it's it's, it's actually hard to repair them because <laughs> it's hard to put them through the sewing machine um i think the biggest change i i heard on a on a podcast uh the other day um about how We've just had the last shipment of DWR fabrics of a of a specific coating that's now uh, been banned. yeah the fluor fluorocarbon yeah uh, um, which has now just been outright banned um, and that's going to years ago but yeah. yeah well no this is the last shipment obviously it's got banned and then it it, it takes a while to get through the system so those let's that's, just make a few more million of them. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so that's the fabric. So there's still going to be, you know, it's a while till the jackets get here. But without those coatings, Gore-Tex and a lot of the other synthetic fabrics aren't going to work because they don't hold up well when they get saturated with the grease. So we're about to go through another materials revolution. We've had the synthetic one, and now we're going to have to re either relearn how to take care of the synthetic stuff. But a lot of the reason that it lasts is the coatings. So I had something uh, a few weeks ago that was um, an eco-friendly coating, and the fabric was beginning to feel thin in parts, and the customer hadn't washed it that much. We are so used to, if you imagine putting your jacket through what you put your t-shirt through, it would stink. <laughs> it would be so yeah. grubby. We've got used to these coatings. So we're going to have to relearn how to look after our stuff. And we might actually find out that Gore-Tex is great until it doesn't have a toxic coating on it. 
and suddenly canvas actually fares better again because either it doesn't last a long time or it just gets so grubby so quick it stops working because it the you know the way it works it it needs the pores through it and if they get clogged up it you just end up a hot mess <laughs> I suppose you could wax your Gore-Tex, get old school on it. <laughs> I don't know how breathable. I don't know if that would well, you'd say bye -bye the opposite, to the or just give course, up and but... give up and yeah, accept that it's a wax jacket. <laughs> but it is also becoming you... trendy. I am seeing older fabrics coming back a bit now. Ones would they be? Uh, well, I think Swedish the Fjallraven and stuff is definitely becoming a bit more trendy and wax smocks are kind of back in in a kind of a niche market i think ventile i went to a fabric expo in london and um ventile had a massive stand there um and i said you know oh, are you busy and he said they they really struggled to get um because the cotton's so specific for it um they struggled to get hold of it anyway but now everybody wants organic as well that's even harder to come by so yeah, I think the old... Yeah, they, they, Ventile also ran into a little bit of a problem with a certain podcaster and blogger who was a bit upset about them that. using uh, yeah, DV, DWR on the old Ventile. Yeah. And yeah. hence lying about both where it was being made and why it was waterproof. But yeah. now, of course, it is Swiss and they have made an eco version. So yeah. um, I don't... I'm really curious how it... The podcaster is more accepting. <laughs> I've actually got a few rolls of the old evil stuff and I'm I'm going to keep some and compare it to the new. I'm really curious how it. I'm going to throw oil at it and and yeah, just see how it wears. I'm really interested. I thought I might um I might I've, I've got a jacket in the makes anyway for my other half. Um, I was going to make a pocket, uh, one pocket out of one and one pocket out of the other. <laughs> see oh. how it fares over time because nothing like a little bit of experimentation. <laughs> now you did touch upon concept of design for repairability mm -hmm. that must be probably what you see every day and can judge everything that comes in on that criteria well, was it made to yeah, be repaired the, the lack of <laughs> design for repairability the most frustrating thing isn't someone who's crashed into a barbed wire fence because that's what happens when you're outside or your dog's chewed it or whatever it's what happens the most irritating thing is getting something that has so deliberately been made for speed <laughs> and not even thought about how to fix it. I mean, even things break in transit, things, what if you mess up at the final stage in the factory? It's it's cheaper for them to put the thing in the bin rather than to go back and, and you know, add in. We used to, there was a shop I worked in and we used to, we used to get returns and things to sell and there was a pair of jeans they sent me to use for patches. It was literally missing a loop, a belt loop. That was all, one belt loop. And they just, they yeah. were effectively gonna put them in the bin because there was no point <laughs> going back through the system. Um, I think with design for repairability, it's being talked about a lot. Um, I trust the brands who do their own repairs more. Um, but I would say there's certain things that they don't, if it's either well out of warranty, so if it's something that happens when the when the item's really old, or if it's something that's really difficult to do, so say the item is 200 pounds to replace, or no, say the item is 200 pounds in the shop, 
that means it's a hundred ish pounds for the brand to give to someone you know if they lose their profit margin on it with the shipping and everything they don't want to spend more than 80 pounds on the repair and they'll probably tell their seamstresses that if it's 80 pounds we'll just give them a new one so those kinds of repairs don't always get fed back to design um they also i think when people think about design for repairability they assume that you need to take the thing fully apart rather than how do you get to something so um this is one i've talked about before um there was a two jackets i did at the same time and um one of them the pieces had been overlocked together and then sewn together and the other one they'd overlocked pieces independently and you wouldn't be able to tell from the wear it had no effect on on the look of the thing on how it sat on the hanger anything like that it was more expensive it was a patagonia jacket the one that was independently overlocked but it just made it that much easier to repair it was in the guts of the thing so i think the most important thing is how do i how do i get it apart as easily as possible so um poppers are a real pain or eyelets because they get put in at the last minute and mean you can't get something inside out and you can't get into a seam. So if you can put a popper on a flap, that makes it a lot better. Or if you can just put it on one side, so all of the fixes and fittings need to be as independent as possible, if <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Um, zips, that's the number one thing that needs to be thought about how you're gonna take the zip out because about 60 to 70% of what I do is zips, which means 70% of the time the thing that fails is going to be the zip so if there's anything that if there's any garment designer who wants advice on how to make the thing repairable it's assumed that the zip is going to need to re be replaced at some point gluing them in is a complete pain glue is my enemy it gets everywhere it looks awful when you take it apart often when it comes if it if the glue comes apart from the zip or the, the fitting or whatever it changes shape so it's hard to get it back together again um, and also it means they don't um, sometimes you've got like a raw edge and it's got some tape or coating around it and that'll that'll just come off and then you're just left with a really thin piece of fabric with a raw edge <laughs> um, and then the final one is seam allowances for um, repairing the bigger the seam allowance the more room you've got the more place you've got to hide stuff if you want to you know put an extra patch in or something um, and mm. there's let there's the the bigger it is the less risk there is that you're going to damage it while you take it apart because sometimes as you're unpicking the seam the whole piece of fabric will start to unravel and it just makes it last longer in the first place that's the biggest difference i've seen between backpacks is seam allowance you can literally line them up in order of seam allowance on the table if you've got 10 backpacks and they'll be in age order wow that's interesting mm. So they're basically being skimping on fabric as they become newer. Skipping on fabric, uh, laser cutting now. Um, cutting's got so accurate now. And um, machines with guides on them. So it makes it much easier for the the seamstress or seamster to, to push it through accurately. So um, I don't know if you've seen it. The, I keep talking about them, but Arcteryx did a really cool video on how they repair stuff. And because um, they really focus on weight, they trim their seam allowances down to nothing and they did a wonderful <laughs> right. job <laughs> repairing this thing but they had it on the film they were putting it through this machine that you couldn't do it by hand there was no way i could have done it on one of my machines without 
this guide to to push it through against um it basically yeah. takes the whole fabric for you you just sit there and push the pedal and um it, it was less than a mil it was so close to the edge that yeah it was a yeah. bit you could tell that's how it had broken in the first place but only someone who can sew would have seen it so yeah anyway <laughs> Yeah, I, I imagine you mentioned that um, the zips were sixty to seventy percent of what you do. I imagine sort of uh, Velcro cuffs probably comes in uh, pretty high on the chart as well. But if they'd put, I mean, if they'd used better zips and Velcros and cuffs and poppers and whatnot to start with, the jacket must have lasted a few years extra. Um, people are usually quite down on Velcro. But in my experience, firstly, it doesn't go completely. It goes gradually, whereas a zip just goes. When a zip stops working, it stops working. But if you think of a button or a popper, sometimes will just go. But often it'll like, oh, it feels a bit wrong. Oh, this is annoying. And, oh, it broke. <laughs> whereas a zip will be fine and then it will just burst or you'll just lose the slider. It will just, that's it. There's no backup. Whereas the Velcro, like over time, it starts to fray. Velcro is often easy quite easy to replace as well because of just the way it's sewn on and because you've got two sides often when it's if I'm having to replace velcro I'm only replacing one side um so on that 20 year old jacket uh the zip was gone the velcro um I've only had to replace the loop side the, the hook side was still fine and that was a size right. eight really durable zip so in that case the yeah zip had actually not lasted as long as the velcro um we could use bigger zips and stop using these reverse coil zips. I get, so they do have a use for the, the reverse coil waterproof zips. It's it's marginal really, because you've got a storm flap anyway. The thing is they've done away with storm flaps or they've done away with a lot of the flaps on pockets. Um, so I do get it for waterproofness. I have a jar of sliders. Every time I replace a zip, I keep the slider just out of interest. And the jar is full of five and three, size five and three, reverse coil sliders. What bothers me the most is we're doing reverse coil. So that's when you, you know, the traditional zip that coils up together, not the Vislon plastic bits that look like a jigsaw, but the coil up ones. Yeah. They flip yeah. them over. So they look really neat now. That's literally the only oh. reason. It's just aesthetics. But they last half as long, if not less. Than normal coil zips and any repairer will tell you that's the first thing they should just ban them because <laughs> they just break <laughs> if i could if i could give anybody advice walking into a shop if they're about to buy new gear the bigger the zip or go for the the plastic zips the the vislon ones the click together they'll always last longer than the reverse not coil metal ones. zips uh yeah you don't see them as much um, I live near the sea, so I would avoid metal zips. It's easy to replace the slider on a zip, so don't worry about that. Um, it's just the, yeah, the teeth. Um, I find the Vislon ones last the longest, just from what I what I've seen here. I was going to say about the Velcro that it it lasts super well for a short period of time, and then it sort of lingers on for ages, <laughs> it where does, it keeps yeah, just coming undone, a little bit unravelled. What I'd like is if they made Velcro with an edge because it always unravels from the side. And I'm sure there's a way to seal the edge better. If you could have like, my dream is a 
my dream it sounds like it's all i think about but is a, a velcro i wouldn't piece, judge you if it was <laughs> a piece of velcro <laughs> surrounded by fabric so it didn't because you know it like as soon as you start sewing it you risk it beginning to fray yeah mm. anyway <laughs> obviously not designed to be used yeah i mean it is it is fantastic stuff and it does work it's great if you're cold because you don't need to like match something it's great for kids it's great for anybody with reduced mobility it's super adjustable as well so rather than having to do multiple poppers i use much more you're... velcro than um than i thought i would when i first started not... i thought oh i'm not convincing you you're, you're not selling it as a very cool okay. idea no no it's not no as a practical <laughs> thing as a practical thing if you're going for okay. beauty i would go for poppers or zips <laughs> Now, you mentioned uh, some of these brands now who are offering uh, their own um, repair services. Uh, a lot of that, I think, is sort of they're taking responsibility for their product, um, being environmentally conscious and so forth. Any thoughts about that? It does also help them hold on to customers. I think for any brand that's thinking of doing it, I think sometimes there's this idea that we might be shooting ourselves in the foot by doing repairs because that means someone isn't going to buy a new thing. But if they have one of your items and it's broken and it clearly has your branding on it the chances of them going back into the shop and buying exactly the same one when they're at this stage they're disappointed about it with it they're going to go into the shop and say mm. my dot 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 jacket has broken do you have anything else <laughs> whereas <laughs> if they can ring up the brand and say can you fix this it it absolutely is hugely a customer loyalty thing i think the brand i used to do it for the the biggest benefit to the company of doing it was customer loyalty because it would turn a bad customer into an incredibly loyal one because now they're going to walk around and say oh they looked after me they fixed my jacket oh i love dot 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 <laughs> so they've gone from a negative to a positive i think there is a lot of greenwashing unfortunately surrounding repairs um i think admitting that it's broken because they've skimped on the design or because they haven't designed for durability would be better than offering repairs and posting about it on Instagram. <laughs> um, mm. But it is fantastic. And I always tell people if it's in warranty, go and get it done with the brand or go and complain about it because I see so many repeat offenders. And especially if a brand's doing it for free or repairs don't have a huge margin. So a brand would rather sell a jacket than repair the thing they're going to make more money from selling a jacket so they've got to have other benefits from so like customer loyalty or whatever but if they can get design feedback from their own items it's only going to improve i hope hope i really think long term if repairs become i mean they're becoming but if it becomes a mainstream thing that people expect from a brand I'll buy this jacket, it breaks. I'll just assume that they have a repair policy. I'll assume that I can get it done. It's only three years old. Then that brand is going to start paying attention to what they're doing. I don't know if you follow uh, Mystery Ranch. They do backpacks in the US, kind of. No. Uh, they do quite technical stuff and they do military stuff as well. But they, um, I heard a guy talking from the repair department and he's um, just a booth down from design. And he'll go around to design and slam a backpack on the desk. Be like, excuse me, why did you do this? <laughs> Which I love that idea that, yeah, it gets fed back. 
I think, interestingly, people have said to me, oh, surely you don't want to support brands doing repairs because that's bad for your business. The worst thing for my business is gear that isn't worth repairing. If it's either really yeah. hard to repair, which means it's going to cost a lot of money, or it's only got another year's left. If someone brings me a jacket and it's completely delaminated and it needs a new zip, I will tell them I one... No, I've done it maybe two or three times now. I've done a jacket that was completely delaminated. I told the person, and I said, it's not waterproof anymore. And I said, I'm going to use it as a windbreaker. It's a sentimental thing. Please, 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 please. But I I won't do something unless I think it's going to last another two, three years. There's, there's just no point because they'll know, they know where I am. <laughs> Come find me. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose for brands uh, offering repairs... That must be a bit of a double-edged sword for them because if you've broken it yourself, they'll say that they won't repair it because you've broken it. Either you've just mm. plain misused it or you've washed it or you've broken it in some way. Uh, we had just had this problem with uh, with a down jacket. Not a down jacket, in fact, that my wife has. Uh, one with synthetic, uh, the new sort of synthetic down. Mm -hmm. It was just collapsing in the in the chambers. And then they said, well, try washing it, which completely shagged it. Oh, no. Um, what happened? Did the stitching so pop or did it just, it was just sinking? It just went all lumpy uh, inside uh. this synthetic filling. Uh, I forget, but the, it's one of these brand brand name fillings, but it okay. just it broke completely. Mm -hmm. So they refunded us. Um, what was I saying? Yes, brands. I mean, first they will try to tell you that you've broken the product yourself. Yeah. So they won't have to repair it. Yeah, because if you've not broken it yourself, they are admitting that the product was faulty. Yeah, which, which is really, kind of is yeah. something they want don't want to say. No, but I think a lot of people don't feel very listened to with outdoor gear. I'm I'm amazed at how many people will tentatively ask if I can make something for them. Is there any way I can alter it for them? We're, we're so not used to gear being perfect for us. People will tell me all the time, oh, no, stuff never fits me around the waist. You've gone out and spent over £100 on a pair of trousers that don't fit. Oh, yeah, but it never fits me. I'm weird. <laughs> we don't like to demand a lot. And I think I think because we've got used to not being special. When you used to go into a tailor's shop... You were a really important customer because without you, <laughs> they wouldn't be in business. Whereas the big brands, without you, but that's not actually true. Without you, that many times over, they wouldn't be in business. <laughs> and I think with the power of social media now, you can actually make quite a fuss. I think people don't complain enough. And I think if we made more of a fuss, brands would... I've seen a chain of emails before. Um, it was a really lovely lady... And I won't tell the brand, tell you the brand because uh, it was quite, yeah, it was pre pretty bad on their behalf. Lovely old lady. Is there any way you could fix this zip on my son's jacket? I just bought, I just bought it a year ago, and he's barely used it. Absolutely not. This is clearly a uh, a fault. Back and forth, back and forth. And I was writing the emails for her. And email number five, they agreed to do it for free. But they were really trying to convince her it was her fault, and it was a tiny zip. It was just not sufficient for the jacket and they hadn't top stitched the lining so the lining had caught in the slider on like the second wear it was a definite common fault that they got all the time they knew the person sitting there would have seen that photo before 
but people are mm. I've also heard designers be quite harsh somebody said to me um, oh people don't know how to use zips that's why they break all the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah right if they don't mm. know how to use zips then we need to reinvent the zip so that it, <laughs> people know how to use them because these people can drive cars so I'm I'm thinking they should probably know how to use it. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's misuse, but then that's what design is there for. Des you're supposed to design something for ease of use. But I'm nearly uh, always on the customer's side. <laughs> I'm quite mean on re the re Regarding uh, how we're all different shapes and mm -hmm. heights and weights and whatever, I mean, it used to be a thing where you could actually go to an outdoor tailor and order, say, your expedition gear or your mountaineering mm -hmm. gear or so forth. There must still be places offering that today. Or are we all so um, romanced by the big brand names that we all just accept that their stuff doesn't fit us? I don't know. I don't know if it's um, the lure of the advertising. If you if you look at you know an amazing video produced by a huge brand, it it just looks really exciting. You walk into a shop and it's huge and it's it's overwhelming and it's you feel like you're part of something because it's you're, you're part of this huge club. I I think it's changing. I think people with the way people are going with vintage, I think people are sick of my generation definitely are, are sick of looking like everybody else. I've not. I can't be the only person who's walked down the high street when I was at uni in Glasgow and and seen someone walking the other way in not one of the same pieces of clothing, but two. So you had the same coat and boots as me, because <laughs> everybody's shopping at the same high street, especially when the internet was just taking off. You had you know these huge name high street retailers, and everybody's shopping in the same five shops. And if you have a specific style and a specific fit, you go to the same. You're <laughs> shopping in the same shop. So I think it's coming back. Uh, it's never gone completely. Um, Savile Row's still there. Still going. <laughs> um, there's definitely been a bit of a, a we well, can't call it a resurgence, but um, growth in the um, suit fitting for women. I remember seeing an article on the first, um, first person on Savile Row to do suits for women custom suits and yeah that's, that's I looked them up and it was a the article was a few years old and there's already more of them so I think custom stuff is coming back I don't know what an increase in price will do I think it could it sounds counterintuitive but I think people could spend more because they think more about what they're spending I think a lot of this throwaway fast fashion culture has come from disposable income You've had time on a Saturday to go shopping. If you now have a second job on a Saturday, you don't go shopping. You don't have time to go out for drinks, so you don't need a new dress. <laughs> um, but when you do, it's a really, you know, you might club together several birthday presents and get yourself one jacket. I don't know. I don't know if it's, that's my hope anyway, that it's going to go the other way. But I think um, I do, I do find sometimes I convince people People don't realise it's possible to have something fitted, even though they remember their mum making them a pair of trousers when they were a kid, or their grandma making them a cardigan that, you know, had extra long sleeves because they got long arms. But they kind of don't think it's it's possible. <laughs> I think, I don't know, We sewing has become so invisible. The, if you ask anybody who's, do you know anyone who sews? They'll say possibly their grandma but you'd have to go to Lancashire or Nottingham 
to easily find people who knew industrial seamstresses, people who, who made, you know, clothes on a larger scale or complicated clothes. The Great British Sewing Bee had no impact at all. Uh, it's had a massive, <laughs> no, it's had a massive impact. I definitely think home sewing, yeah, there's, I don't see them though. They don't come to me. So I never, I very rarely meet seamstresses because they just do their own thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I think one thing the sewing bee did show was that with quite limited means, basically a sewing machine mm-hmm. and a little gumption, you could do great stuff. It's so liberating as well to make clothes that fit you and that you want to wear. I've had a complete revelation in how I dress since I started. So I I made clothes when I was a, a kid with my mum um, and my, my grandma. Well, one grandma was a commercial seamstress and the other one was a quilter. Um, and then I didn't really do it when I was at uni. And then it was in lockdown. All my clothes were up in Scotland and I was in Cornwall. <laughs> so I had no summer clothes. And um, the fabric shops did very well in COVID. <laughs> Everybody who yeah. sewed went, this is what we've been preparing for this whole time. Um, so, yeah, I got really into it then. And it was just so liberating. Like, it wasn't this horrible experience every time I went to the shop that the thing I wanted wasn't there in size or I was wrong or it was the wrong colour or whatever. It, it's it's so nice making your own clothes. It's And I think because it's so personal, because you it's literally right next to your skin it's really lovely making a wool hanging but making yourself a warm cardigan feels yeah very satisfying (laughs) it's like chopping wood it's being self-sufficient i think but plus you can make it properly yeah 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 and if you don't you find out and then you do because every sewer has made something that they thought was great and 10 minutes later they've <laughs> they've bent down to the fridge to pick something up and gone oh whoops yeah should have double stitched there <laughs> yeah. that's a bit more seam allowance yeah <laughs> um a question i was asked to ask by a friend what is best of down filling and polyester filling or synthetic versus natural there are so many podcasts and articles on this topic <laughs> they can read for uh, at length uh the short answer is um down can be warmer but uh synthetic's better if you're going to get soggy so if it's going to rain um for the uk my other half is hates down he's a complete synthetic convert he thinks it's, it's brilliant but he also is quite warm so he gets quite sweaty so he doesn't like the heat of the down um so it's a little bit of personal preference as well but um it just depends how wet they're going to get are they in Norway? Are they going to be in the snow? Uh, no. In fact, he's oh, in right. England. Oh, okay. But, uh, um, yeah, for Britain, if they're going to, if there's a risk that they're going to get a shower, I would say synthetic is better. Right, because then the you're there. thinking that the damp will actually come into the filling. Yeah, yeah. So down is really affected by um, by damp but the synthetic carries on keeping you warm. So as soon as the feathers, they're saying that they've now got hydrostatic or whatever special feathers that are, are better. But if you, I mean, you can do it, take a handful of feathers and put them under the, put them under the tap and take a handful of synthetic wadding and put it under the tap. <laughs> and you can imagine the difference yeah. between the two. I think they'd both, both be pretty nasty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're making... It is interesting though that 
they are developing both types fully mm-hmm. still. Uh, I mean, they're, well, they're kind of converging now. You're still. getting the synthetic down that acts like down and looks like feathers, rather than just having like a kind of wadding sheet. It's actually feels like feathers. I don't. I haven't seen that performing in the way. You yet. don't. You don't get any impression seeing the older jackets that have been used a lot. Where there's no difference to how well they stand up over time. Uh, it's difficult to say because down's been around longer. So the older stuff, I'd say probably down, the old down is more durable. So I think it was Rab used to uh, have a service where you could send in your old sleeping bag. They would take the down out, make you a new sleeping bag and put your old down back in because the down lasted longer than the fabric. And now they offer a restuffing service because the down collapses. So I don't know if it's fair to say down lasts longer without comparing modern down and old school down. But I don't know if that's because they've got different breeds or because they're more picky with which feathers they take because obviously they only take the softest ones. And the old down is definitely, I mean, it's crunchy sometimes when you press on it. It's, yeah, they, they definitely took bigger feathers, but... Yeah, not mm. really fair to ask that question because it's such a big question. It's yeah. There's yeah. <laughs> so many caveats. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now you did mention the fact that they're not allowed to use DWR, durable mm-hmm. water resistance, is it? Like Repellent. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure longer. if it's all. I don't know if it's some. I'm not sure the whole technical. I, I can't remember all the words. I'm chemistry yeah, was because that was the that was the the carbon six uh, fluorocarbon yeah. uh, repellents, uh, which causes massive amounts of cancer and all sorts of nasty stuff. It's pretty bad for uh, frogs which, as well, I think. Uh huh. <laughs> I think it's bad for frogs. <laughs> I remember reading that <laughs> well, somewhere. I think it's bad, bad, bad for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we've been happily using them for years and years and years. Yeah. Um, do you know anything about? Uh, I keep seeing these green um, water repellents, uh, environmentally friendly versions. They never sort of get into specifics of how they work, and no. I don't know how well they work. But I'm curious. I'm not sure how well they work, but I would say the ones I've seen, the jackets I've seen with the modern versions on them, are greasier. They definitely don't repel oils as well, from what I've seen. But I don't know how. You know that that could be that there's just more development on the way and they could be as good in three years time but certainly for the moment when i've had two jackets next to each other and one's been the nasty stuff it's always cleaner and it's grease more than anything that it doesn't seem to repel as well but i don't know if that's because um i don't know if that's one of those things that if you washed it more then you know you need to learn to wash it more because it doesn't have the magic coating on it because it has the organic one <laughs> one thing i don't know how relevant it is you don't have to include it is um i find a lot of companies be- it really bothers me how there are sustainable ethical fashion companies or outdoor gear companies who claim that they make all this stuff in the uk or they make it ethically and blah 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 and they're based somewhere bonkers and they just have a factory making it for them 
which okay they can ask the right questions and everything and, and I'm all for not everybody has to be everything from the designer to the maker to the shop I, I understand that but everybody there's a lot of people who, who like to make the impression that they make it themselves but they don't and now that I've been in this business I can tell within minutes whether somebody makes something themselves or they don't from their branding, from their Instagram, from their... You just have to look on their about page. And if there's no photo of a sewing machine, it's, it's you know, <laughs> anybody who owns a sewing machine wants to show it off. I have a bar tacker that's worth three grand. I want to show it off. <laughs> I want to tell people I've got it. Like, I'm working on an update on the website. And, you know, a lot of people who've got a bar tacker would be front and centre of their main page. And you can tell people who don't because they'll be really vague about their manufacturing processes and they won't use sewing language and I think it's not that the problem isn't that they don't make the stuff themselves the problem is that they like to give people the impression that they do and also that they like to give people the impression that they know how to sew themselves which means the gear is better but it's not because they don't they are giving a factory a tech pack at most sometimes they're outsourcing that sometimes they're giving a sketch to a garment technologist who's creating a tech pack who's sending that to the factory for those who don't know what a tech pack is uh i learned this recently i have not gone to fashion school i went to boat engineering school <laughs> boat engineering <laughs> no i just went to strathclyde university i did naval architecture but yeah boat engineering okay. uh, <laughs> um so it's basically a, a sheet of paper and it'll just describe um like what is it so you can go as in-depth or or as vague as you want the vaguer you go the more they'll just use off the shelf or have their standard practice so they'll have like this is how we normally do pockets if they don't specify so you can say needs to be a size eight zip needs to be this length needs to start here the stitch length needs to be this you need to bar tack here and you need to double stitch here and you need to overlock this part or you can just say here's a picture make sure that looks like that make sure that's those seams are you know done up the side and you can be pretty vague i think i've never actually put one together but i've, I've seen the finished ones um yeah and i suppose there are enough factories around the world who know how to make stuff so you can just say i'll have model three yeah. in red yeah make it yeah yeah and then just take Kathy care of all from, the important yeah. marketing uh kathy from joe brown she said it really well the other day she said there's two ways to make outdoor gear one, you can get a catalogue and you can go, I'll have that one in red and I want my logo on the chest. Right. <laughs> or you can have an in-house designer. <laughs> Design team, presumably. Maybe just a single designer. Um, but yeah, there's an awful lot of people who just slap a logo on it and then we'll bag on about their manufacturing and, and they, they don't. So it's worth, if you if you read anything, whether it's about manufacturing, whether it's about being ethical, being sustainable, their repair policy, whatever, just think about who's writing it and what they have to gain from writing it because it's probably not the repairer <laughs> it's probably not somebody who's you know an avid Greenpeace supporter it's it's somebody from the marketing team and mm. what have they been told to do <laughs> what are their objectives what are they going to get pulled up if they don't do how are they going to get their bonus <laughs> this year <laughs> We like to think that everybody does things out of niceness, but 
they don't at the end of the day we all need to feed our families first and i think this is where we need to make a case not just of doing the right thing but it's the most sensible thing to do doing i think this is why i like to argue all the other points for doing repairs not just that it is better for the planet but that it's better for the customer it's a better customer experience it's better for gear design in general it's there's there's so many other reasons there's the feedback to design there's yeah it's just logical <laughs> but it, it's think... cheaper often it's cheaper for the brand even to not long term it's cheaper for the brand depends whether you're building a brand long term or whether you yeah. just have 250 jackets you want shot of that you need to, and i think a lot of the quotas and not even quotas but but whatever they need to fulfill it's done monthly it's so quick it's not if i had started this and needed to grow at a certain pace and had objectives and had you know a meeting with investors after six months they would have been really disappointed in me but after eight months they would have been really impressed but it wouldn't have done any difference you know it wouldn't have made a difference if it had been a six month check-in so people are forcing themselves to grow so quickly that then they're not I've met so many people who I thought I was going to have to convince people to get repairs done. There are a few people who they'll be a bit hesitant at first whether it's worth it. And after one repair, they'll be like, oh, this is so easy. This makes so much sense. Oh, this is great. Can you do this? What about this? Can you do this? But there's been people, the, the group of people that I didn't expect and the ones who convinced me that it was worth starting a, you know, a full time business on this was the people who just went, oh, thank God. <laughs> finally someone who's listening to me <laughs> somebody who actually wants me to design and i thought this is mad because these people are dressed head to toe in outdoor gear brands and they're so frustrated <laughs> at, at what the brands are doing <laughs> yeah um this must be a bit similar to the way barber and other wax jacket companies market their jackets as mm -hmm. rewaxable but the customers really don't have an idea of what that involves mm, mm -hmm. so you'll say to someone who has a jacket obviously in need of care and they'll just well how does that happen mm -hmm. but it was also important what you were saying about who writes the marketing blurb and why they write it like they do because i've been thinking a lot lately about how difficult it is to go into a shop and buy something mm. because i'm so hard to convince when i'm selling myself on yeah. an idea but reading stuff written online mm -hmm. is so much more convincing. Yeah. And naturally, it's, it's because I'm not doing it myself. It's a yeah. professional marketer who's yeah. convincing me. Possibly somebody with a degree in psychology as well. <laughs> oh, using all the buzzwords. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, but is it interesting that you say about... Oh, no, sorry. No, no, go on. What about wax jackets about people not knowing what's involved? Um... I found out about um, Frostline kits a little while ago, and have you have you ever come across them? They were really big in the nineties, when eighties and nineties, where people did a lot of home sewing. So a lot of women that age would have made their own wedding dresses. Um, everybody would probably remember having watched someone do a repair, whether it was their grandma, their dad, whoever. They would have remembered seeing. There would be a needle and thread in the house somewhere. So people were used to sewing and suddenly there was this explosion of interest in the outdoor industry and there were other fabrics coming onto the market, so the synthetic fabrics that were 
easier to sew with because wax canvas was was pretty hard to get through a domestic machine um so they were kind of exciting developments but they were really expensive so it made sense to make your own gear um and there was this huge there, there was a huge industry in selling these kits and they would sell you it was like a uh down by numbers <laughs> they would number which baffle they'd give you these little pockets of down and you, okay. you you'd stuff them in the down jacket and they'd cut cut the pieces to size and then you just kind of sew, sewed it up at home and then one way or another they you i looked them up all on wikipedia and, and one by one they all went bust and hmm. for whatever reason people stopped home sewing anyway i kept thinking about it and it wasn't till weeks later i was listening to a podcast and someone said the downfall of home sewing of, of home outdoor gear making was Gore-Tex and seam sealing and that nobody had any idea of how to do yeah. it and it just seemed you needed this huge machine and it you couldn't see you couldn't see how something was put together anymore if something has a lining often it's pretty rough on the inside because you're not going to see it so you take out yeah. the lining and the whole thing makes sense and you can figure it out so if it rips there's even a chance that you're going to work out what's wrong with it but a lot of waterproof people bring in and go I've no idea what you do with this because it's whoa, I can't see any stitching it's invisible because it's all you know hidden behind tape I've got a heat press but you can actually get away with a lot on a home iron we just I think it was this fabric this magic new fabric and magic new, new stuff came at the same time as stuff was being offshored so there's a, a group of there's, there's types of clothing and there's also ways of making things so like seam sealing or overlocking that people really i said something about overlocking to my grandma oh i never had one of those the machine i have was made when she was sewing <laughs> it's older than my overlocker is older than her but it was still new technology so people don't understand how it was made so either the jackets that we're wearing now haven't existed for long enough that people know how to make them because they've all been made overseas but also it's yeah it's so hidden that it's just once you start doing it it's scary but once you start taking a pair of scissors to stuff or an unpicker to stuff it's really not that complicated it's just not taught in traditional sewing books yeah you've got to work it out on your own and nobody wants to tell you about it because it's all very hush hush now that it's in china <laughs> yeah i guess the reason my gore-tex killed the home sewing though was that it sort of was the space age version and it made everything yeah. else look old fashioned and crap. Yeah, yeah. Although, wait five years <laughs> and yeah. suddenly the home zone one doesn't look so bad anymore. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's a reason why, I mean, all this vintage army stuff and all the mm. old mountain equipment, down jackets and all the. are so popular now. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's they a look, have but it's, yeah, it's what's really interesting is um, so my I remember my mum telling me years ago about my great grandmother got a new Arga and it had some little handle door something on it and it was where you would have had the fire but now it was an electric one but it was now a useless cupboard it wasn't even like a heated cupboard it was just a a useless hole in the thing that they put there to remind you so it's like a fake version of what used to be there and i've seen it a few times now on old gear it's made to look like it you used to but it's not actually made in the old way anymore <laughs> there was one that was like um it was a a little rivet 
and before it was done through all the straps to to hold a piece together because I'd seen one of the old backpacks and they they brought out you know a limited edition run of these new ones and the the rope was just on one layer it was just to look like the but it wasn't doing what it used to do <laughs> it's funny mm-hmm. it was just it was just the look of vintage but so being an experienced observer of stuff that has failed do you have any tips for people buying stuff for what to look for to have something that lasts a while um so first of all is zips the bigger the zip the better uh avoid the reverse coil ones if you can um a really common thing so an early days thing so there's there's things that break long term and things that break short term um things that i used to get in for i I obviously don't see a lot of warranties because i'm private um but yeah for when i used to work for a company um is draw cords pulling out because you're sewing a round thing to a flat thing um so if you can get to a shop have a look at the thing in person it's often much easier to see in person um whether something's going to fall apart i can't tell online what's what's going to break but hand me something and i'll start pulling at it and it'll make a bit more sense um so anywhere where there's cords going in um have a yank on them (laughs) see if you can pull them out if you break something in the shop the brand's going to get the money back if you break it on the hill you might not so put it through its first wear in the changing room so pull on it might have been made on a friday the people who are putting this stuff together are under a lot of pressure to go as fast as they can so they might they might just be in a rush they might be having a bad day it's still a human hand at the end of the day so mistakes can be made so like even um often when you get a popped seam it's where they've changed the thread but they haven't back tacked enough um you can see where they've it's a new thread that's come in or often um on the inside seams of stuff they'll actually use a bonkers color because they're trying to get rid of a i pulled apart a, a black jacket once and the inside seams the ones you couldn't see were all sewn together with a rainbow thread <laughs> that they must have just all ordered by accident or something um so yeah try and pull everything apart um also um if you can scratch fabrics often my test of if something's durable it literally scratch it with your fingernail and see if it's if it starts to bubble or if you can scratch through it um some of the new fabrics you you can you can literally pull pull the fibers which is a bit scary um and then see if see what their repair policy is and the better the repair policy the better the reviews of the repairs the probably the better the item not always it's not a rule there's still patagonia stuff that falls apart but um yeah as a general guide if if you go on a brand's website and you there's you can't find it so you know sometimes you go on the website and at the top it says women's men's sizing about repairs <laughs> the best brands or sometimes it's all the way at the bottom or sometimes you have to google it before you get there or sometimes it doesn't exist at all uh, and i guess some have a, a sort of a repair policy where you can send it back to bangladesh yeah. at your own cost well usually they're like usually they're in the country um so uh patagonia um only fairly recently started doing repairs in the uk because they couldn't find any UK-based repairers to do it. Um, because it's it's so time-consuming um, anyway. That doesn't really make sense because it's, it's a lot of money. But it's also, I think because it's so time-consuming, it doesn't make sense for the factories to do it. <clears throat> and it also isn't great. So in my workshop, it's everything's so close. I've got an overlocker there. I've got a needle feed there. And I've got a, you know, 
all my different machines really close to me in a factory it'd be really hard to have one of everything really close to you you'd ha- you usually have a repair department but I, I don't think the Chinese factories are going to be that interested in doing repairs because it's one-offs mm. that was yeah. a flippant remark I, I admit it it would it was just to make <laughs> uh, make returning repairs that much yeah. harder so yes. it would be such yes. an effort that they the customer that. wouldn't yes. bother they just oh, give yeah. up and yeah. go away yeah, and yeah. Okay, yeah. So if it says Bangladesh, it's probably a, probably a crap. I get what you mean. There. Yeah. When you call a repair service and they never answer yeah. the phone or don't respond yeah. to emails or whatever. Or if they have a really long wait time, because sometimes I mean my wait time is is about a month at the moment. It's longer in the winter, um, but if they have two month long repair policy, they're probably not that interested in going through them. So because in two months, ah, oh, may as well get a new jacket then. <laughs> Yeah. I would also say, going back to the durability thing, um, people really focus on lightweight gear. And it does have a time and a place. But I think people think of it as that's the pinnacle of technical gear. If it's lightweight, that means I'm I'm best suited to, you know, I'm, I'm wearing the best things I can to go up on this mountain. If you fall over, if you trip and fall when you're on a mountain and you rip your jacket open or you you bust the zip and now you've got, you know, whatever, a broken ankle and you can't zip your jacket up, (laughs) you're in quite a pickle. Or if your jacket breaks after two years and you didn't really want to go running anyway and it's raining, really think about if this jacket stopped working... (laughs) It's not always the lightest gear isn't always going to get you up the hill the fastest or have you the best, you know, make sure you have the best time or get you out the most. Sometimes it's the piece of gear that you can rely on the most that is the safest or the one that you're going to take every single time. This jacket I have of my mum's is ridiculously heavy, but I know I can't rip it. So if I'm going to go on a walk and I'm a bit, I've you know looked at the map and we're a bit unsure and oh, are we going to have to go through that gorse? Is that gorse there? I'll take that jacket. I have the same relationship with my old uh, Fjellraven expedition. Oh, really? If I if I slip and fall over, I know my fall yeah. will be dampened because yeah. okay. six inches of down that's protecting yeah. me. Uh, that's that's brilliant. Um, has the world of visible mending come into outdoor wear or does everyone want it to be as uh, invisible and as factory-like as possible i would credit patagonia with nearly all of <laughs> the desire to have colorful patches on stuff um cotopaxi stuff is actually almost looks like it's been deliberately patched i don't know if you've seen they've, they've got like multicolor baffles um so their stuff's great to repair because it already looks already looks a bit wacky um i find it's a little bit on the person it's a little bit on the sport climbers i definitely always want to look a bit wackier (laughs) and younger people usually want to look a bit different because i think you know they're still in that i don't know if it's a rebellious thing um but i'd say the the biggest indicator is what brand they're wearing and i'm still not quite sure why that is but certain brands if somebody's got you know a really swish pair of a certain brand they they just want it to look like you've never been there but if they've got yeah patagonia um Cavu, brands appeal to certain types of people yeah yeah because yeah, i can see it's patagonia being more uh, 
mm-hmm. more granola than um, Arcteryx, say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Arcteryx are the, I've found of all of my customers, Arcteryx want the, the cleanest, most invisible. It's a black patch on a black item and they are really worried it's going to be obvious. <laughs> And then you get someone phone up and say, "Is there any? Have you got anything neon?" <laughs> you go, "Oh, <laughs> apples and oranges." <laughs> yeah, but, yeah I suppose regular listeners are now waiting for me to say something snarky about Patagonia, but I hadn't thought I would <laughs> this time. Uh, I <laughs> oh, could you say can. something about you can. Patagonia I've... being uh, naturally virtues, virtue signalling, and all this, but I'll, oh, I'll leave yeah, off yeah. for this time. So. <laughs> They, um, the biggest thing they could do for all the talk about repairing is they could have a section of their website where you could buy fabric, zippers, buttons, poppers, spare down, toggles, all that stuff. I don't know why. When you get a shirt, it comes with a button. Why do jackets not come with a spare slider? They could sell it. They could make money from it. Why? actually do have jackets that have come with spare poppers and buttons. Have you ever come across a spare slider? No. Mm. And that would be helpful because finding the specific slider that would work with the zip that is on the jacket. Yep. I have a huge box of sliders and I I have four different suppliers because it's so hard to get hold of the different sizes. If Patagonia really cared about everybody repairing their stuff they would make it Yes, having a needle and thread is great, but the majority of repairs I do actually don't require a needle and thread. (laughs) They require tape, specific fabric, which is really hard to buy. It's really hard to, especially when they don't tell you on the label, because they don't want to give their secrets away. But by selling you the fabric, they don't need to give the secrets away. They can just give you a 30 centimetre piece. You can't rip them off and make a jacket out of 30 centimetres. But they could make all that stuff accessible and then they could have a section that was for commercial repairers to buy a box of dot 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 this many Patagonia items. Not if you exclusively repair Patagonia, but as an example to the rest of the industry. I've had Fjall Raven have been really good. I emailed the guy and said, is there any chance I could get some of your G1000 for a, a knee patch? I'm forever doing Fjall Raven knee patches. And, um, and he said, yeah, sure, right away and gave me some. I'd love a roll because <laughs> I do so many, but um, yeah. I had a it's, similar it's experience. Different. It must be almost ten years ago mm-hmm. um, when H and M, quality uh, makers of slow fashion, <laughs> but they did they did an amazing collection about ten years ago um, mm-hmm. because it celebrated what well, must have been the hundredth anniversary of when H and M came together which was Hennes ah. and Moditz mm-hmm. and they did a menswear collection based on vintage pieces from around that time mm-hmm. uh, and it was great stuff I have still have quite a few of them oh. um, but they did some uh, tweed trousers using I think it was moon tweed from England mm-hmm. now at the time I was cycling to and from work and it occasionally rained and cycling in tweed trousers in the rain <laughs> meant that <laughs> There was a certain amount of wear on the posterior. Yeah. <laughs> and I was at my most militant at the time. So I um, got in touch with H&M and I was really pissed off. And mm-hmm. I, I did not give up. And in the mm. end, I was in, put in contact with the guy who had designed the trousers. Oh, wow. And he actually had a patch of the tweed. 
That's in his amazing. desk drawer which he sent me so oh, I wow. could repair them. That's really good. <laughs> so that is one point in time when I'd actually like to give them credit for uh, Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> doing well. <laughs> it's nice to find a person on the other end as well, to a face behind the brand because it's easy to just think of them as big companies and not it does make them seem a little more human. Yeah. Um, most yeah. customer services are so immensely annoying. I mean, I don't know what their job interviews are like, but it must be something like, are you immensely annoying as a person? Do yeah. you hate people? Can yeah. you re send the same email reply again and again and again and not listen? Mm -hmm. Okay, you're hired. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I used to, um, this company I used to work for, I used to get people from customer services and I ended up uh, for a little while, um, there were, yeah, there was someone in customer services that I think just was winding people up. And I said, can you send me the person's phone number because it's easier to explain. And I would phone the person up and I go, hi, it's so-and-so from Alpkit. And they go, oh, sorry, I've said their name. You can do that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, um, I'm sure that maybe they won't mind. And they go, oh, God, yeah, what is it? And I'd say, I'm, I'm from repairs. I'm, I want to talk about your dot, dot, dot jacket or whatever. And they go, really? Do you? <laughs> it was the, are you a real person? Do you care? <laughs> Do you know my name? <laughs> it was just the yeah, the sheer amazement <laughs> that I actually wanted to because I, I, I think at the end of the day, I don't know I would get handed someone and they would say, Oh, this person's really irritating, dot dot dot, they want and they're being ridiculous. And I'd get the thing and sometimes they were. I got the odd person and you know, they they'd been to Tibetan back with a bike bag and, and they they were furious that it was broken. <laughs> They'd had it for 16 years. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Why is it broken? <laughs> well, <laughs> but you'd also get people kind of sheepishly saying, oh, I can't believe this is broken. And I'd seen it a hundred times already. It wasn't them at all. It was a manufacturing error. Yeah. And customer services, I think, were just trained to say, this person's being irritating. I think the world has become because it's all so much bigger and it's so much less personal and customers are more disposable but so are brands there's a lot less loyalty back and forth there's a lot less hi I know you made this but I think you made a mistake is there any possibility you could fix it oh yes absolutely Jeremy mm. how are the kids <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore I think when people have come to me when I've done something they didn't on the rare occasion I've misunderstood or whatever they're really apologetic and then I'm really apologetic and we we immediately assume that the other person's in the right and we're in the wrong and it's all sorted out really swiftly because they're definitely not disposable to me and there's not many repairers in the UK so I, I think I'm probably fairly indisposable to them. Mm. Well, there you go. Mm. In closing, Rosanna, yes. anything you'd like to mention? Anything um, we haven't covered? I don't think so. We talked quite a lot. <laughs> Um, I would say if anyone's interested in doing their own repairs, YouTube is a fantastic resource. Uh, Patagonia have got some videos and iFixit is really good as well. Um, of anything that's uh, a really therapeutic and really satisfying repair is, uh, we're just talking about at the start, is darning. Um, if you want to get started with repairs, um, it's quite scary to attack a down coat, but um, knitwear because it's you can completely undo it and you, you you know if you mess up I've redone dance the first few I did I've, I've redone now um 
and it, it's really it's really lovely to do it's very satisfying there's um a lovely lady i'm going to pronounce it wrong now uh she's called something colleen wood norris and she has a beautiful book called visible creative mending i think it's called i'd highly recommend that to anyone that wants to get into repairs inspiring words indeed <laughs> okay rosanna thanks a lot for being my guest today thank you for having me <laughs> it's very and, funny um, to finally talk to you having listened to the podcast so much <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is really weird to hear because i had so little feedback and yeah. oh, no, it's, it's i really quite rarely hear from people who do listen so <laughs> i do wonder <laughs> no it's very interesting i've i've enjoyed it through okay. my sewing journey <laughs> so far okay bye-bye for now and that's all for this week's episode of garmology if you'd like to check out my guest further there's links in the show notes there's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee which is perfectly optional i'm just pleased you're listening if you'd like to get in touch suggest a guest just let me know what you think it's uh welldressedad at gmail.com you can follow me on instagram as welldressedad so until next week bye bye <laughs>